now that we are in Christ, if you're a Christian, we've been looking at what the Bible says about you. And we've talked about being holy, being made alive, being now made saints, being rescued from the king, dominion of darkness, placed in the kingdom of God's beloved son, and lots of things like that. And for the last couple of weeks, we've transitioned from talking solely about who we are to now talk about how we're to live. Those two things are never to be separated. The Bible never says, behave like this, without first of all saying, because of who you are. The reason we tell birds to fly is because that's what they were made for. It'd be cruel to, 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 if the Bible told us to fly because we're not made for flying. But as people, children, loved and redeemed and chosen, forgiven by God, it tells us now to live that out in our lives, that our essence, our identity, always goes before our activity. That being said, we are talking about our activity and how we're to behave. Last week, since it was Mother's Day, we looked at the exciting theme of submission and family. You remember that, those of you who are here. Um, But I want to pick up today, not from last week, but we're going to jump back a couple of weeks, where Andrew was speaking on the subject of peace. And uh, he, he talked about the theme of peace and said, and was looking at how we can cultivate and develop peace in our lives. He said, we become more peaceful as we grow in Christian character, as we develop good habits. But then also he touched on something that we're going to expand on this morning as we become more thankful, as we become more thankful. So we're going to talk this morning all about thankfulness. And on your seats, you should have seen a piece of paper and a pen a quadrant. You don't need that right away, but we are going to be making it practical and doing some, uh, some classwork together today. Not homework, classwork. That's where we're going. Let me read from Colossians 3, and then uh, we'll get going. This is Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. Paul, writing to the church, says then, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, again, as a result of who you are, Put on, behave like this. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you probably spotted it as we read it, but let's just click on this next slide. You can see the word thankful appeared uh, three times in just that short reading. Be thankful. Let thankfulness dwell in your hearts and with thankfulness do the following things. Thankfulness. It's a big theme of Paul's writing, a big theme of the Bible. And is Paul just a... It sounds a little bit like a parent, doesn't it? Teaching a kid, be thankful, make, make sure you say thank you. Is that what Paul's about? Just say thank you, remember your manners. Is Paul secretly, is this theology secretly where we get our English politeness and manners from? The word thank you, second in importance only to that of sorry. If you're an English person or if you've been in England any length of time, you know that to get by in this country, you just really need to, those two words, thank you and sorry. Those are the two things. Sorry, I didn't do anything wrong, but sorry. Thank you, thank you, sorry. Yes, thank you, thank you, sorry. I'm not sure what for, but there we go. That's how you do, that's how we get by. Is that what Paul's doing? No, it isn't, is it? That's not what Paul's doing. Actually, thankfulness is a big theme. And actually, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the importance and significance of thankfulness throughout the Scriptures. So, 
if we just kick back into the Old Testament for a little bit, in the book of Psalms, which is the, the song book in the middle of our Bibles, um, there's thankfulness and the theme of thankfulness appears at least 22 times. In Psalm 33 verse 2, for example, it says, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Um, thankfulness with, with instruments. And then in Psalm 105, verse 1, Paul said, oh, sorry, David, who wrote a lot of the songs, said, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Psalm 106, verse 1, Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And then as if he was an artist had struck on a particularly catchy lyric, Psalm 107, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And then Psalm 108, the next one, verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing your praise among the nations. Thankfulness is a big theme of the Old Testament. Uh, It's a big part of David's songs. In the New Testament, around 55 times alone, thankfulness is stressed. Paul writes to a church in Thessalonica and says, Be thankful in every and all circumstances. In every and all circumstances. The church, Christian people, believers, uh, ought to be known for their thankfulness. We ought to have a, a culture of thankfulness. Sadly, that isn't often the case. You're right, John. You've got to go. No one's noticed. It's okay. You just slip out quietly. Thankfulness is a, it ought to be something that you find readily available in the church. We, should, we know we had our wheel of fortune the last few weeks. We should have just had six of thankfulness, perhaps. Actually, cultivating thankfulness, and the reason thankfulness is important, is because when we develop a habit or a lifestyle of thankfulness, what we're doing is almost like we're cultivating the soil, we're turning it over in order that good things are able to grow. It's like kneading your character's dough. It's like kneading the dough of character and working the yeast through. Every time you're cultivating thankfulness, that's why it's so important. But as we see in in those verses behind me, there's a difference between just saying thank you. Uh, So in verse 17, Paul says, give thanks to God as though it's this this kind of nebulous thing that you can offer up as, a, as an act of worship. Give thanks to God, but that's different from having thankfulness in your hearts and being thankful. There's a difference between saying thank you and being thankful. We know that, don't we? Um, my kids are getting good at saying thank you, but we're questioning how thankful they really are. <laughs> They're learning to say the right things. There are plenty of polite English people who have a lot of thankfulness on their lips but not much of it in their hearts and to cultivate gratitude it involves two things it involves our lips and our actions but it also involves our hearts I want us to consider this morning the belief that underpins gratitude as well as then go on to talk about some of the behavior that gratitude and thankfulness ought to look like the belief and the behavior those are the two things that we're just going to consider how do we cultivate both of them So let's start with the heart. Let's start with the heart. The heart of gratitude. What we believe as people, not just as Christians. What what some of our underlying values and beliefs are. A few weeks ago, I I talked about a 17th century theologian called John Owen. And uh, I mentioned that he had a particularly tragic life or lived in a particularly painful part of history. Um, And 10 of his 11 children he had to bury 
uh, through various things, diseases and ill health and things. Ten of his eleven. And yet we saw him talking about the importance of, you know, praising Jesus and being thankful. Well, this week I, dis- I discovered another biography um, about another 17th century theologian called Cotton, Ma- what's his name? Cotton Mather, which is a, an interesting name, Cotton Mather. Well, like John Owen, he had to bury 13 of his 15 children. Only two of his kids outlived him. Now, that, that, I mean, that's, that sounds tragic, but imagine, imagine that. Raising children and, and along, the, along the, your, the course of your life and having to bury 13 of them. And yet he, like John Owen, was someone who was known for his gratitude and worship, his love of God. I have to confess, I don't know much about that. When my life is difficult, when I go through periods of difficulty, I must confess, probably like some of us here, like many of us maybe, one of my first thoughts is towards atheism. Maybe there isn't a God then. If this horrible, tragic circumstance is happening, maybe there isn't a God. I don't understand what I'm going through. Therefore, one of my first reactions is maybe there isn't a God. But that wasn't an option that John Owen and others in his period in history went to. Why not? What's the difference between them and me or them and us? Society that we live in. Well, there's, there's a number of differences. One of the big ones is that we, I speak for myself, and I hope I can say we, I, uh, live with a high sense of entitlement, what I think I deserve. And that isn't just about stuff. What I think I deserve boils down to, I think I deserve and I'm entitled to understand everything in the world. I would never say it like that. I'm not as arrogant to say that out loud, but I hide it. And that's what's underneath in my gut, in my heart, is that I think I should understand everything. Why? Because I live in the age of Google. We live in the age where there are no mysteries anymore. We understand everything about the world. Or if we don't, we will do. Human endeavor will discover. And the difference between me and people like John Owen is that they seemed happy to live with mystery, whereas we can't stand mystery. We explain it away. And where mystery exists, we, we, we rather veer towards atheism than trusting God a lot of the time. See, for them, they say, I don't understand this pain, but I'm thankful to God and I trust him because there's clearly a lot about the world I don't understand. For us, many of us, we think, well, we understand everything about the world, so why can't I understand why I'm going through this? Therefore, there isn't a God, is where a lot of us might go. So entitlement, perhaps, with worldview, uh, but also entitlement with, with stuff. We've learned and understand the power of the pound. We are kings and queens in our own empires, lords and... What's the opposite of a, a female lord? Is it a lord? Yeah. Lady, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ten lords are leaping. Yes, anyway. um, we are lords and ladies in our domains. And therefore, I've learned that you get what you pay for, which means you get what you pay for. I can get anything if I can raise the money because I'm in charge of my own soul, the captain of my own ship. That's part of the we live in. And if we don't get a return on our investment, we feel shortchanged. If you're in business and you invest, you expect a good return on that investment. You're not going to be grateful if you don't get it. That makes sense because you invest, you want a return. As customers, I want, a, I want the product that I've paid for to do what I've paid for it to do. And if I don't get that, it's hard for me to be grateful. But that's also true in relationships, isn't it? I invest a lot of time and energy into you. And if you don't show me what I think I deserve... It's hard for me to be grateful towards you because I'm entitled for something to come back. 
Or the same with our taxes. You know, previous generations would never have thought about our taxes. They thought, well, that's what I have to give in order to survive. Whereas we don't. We think about taxes as, well, this is my money. And the government now owe me a service because I'm paying for it. £2,000 a year I pay for the NHS. I hope it lives up to that. And we live with this underlying sense of entitlement. So although there's a veneer of gratitude, often if you scratch away at the surface, we often, all of us, have a, a high sense of entitlement. My rights, my privileges. So what can we do about all this? What do we really deserve? That's what it boils down to, doesn't it? Uh, what have we really earned? We're talking about our beliefs. What do we believe that drives this entitlement? And I bumped into a lady at the train station on Friday, and um, a, a sweet lady who's a, a Christian lady, and she's in her 80s, I think, uh, or late 70s, and she's a lovely lady. And I said hello. I said, oh, what are you up to? She said, oh, I'm, I'm just off to Greece to work with the refugees. I was like, wow, what are you doing? What are you going to do? Out there? Oh, whatever they need. I'll serve out food. I'll just care for people. I'll love people. I was like, wow. She's a lovely lady, lovely character. And, uh, and I said, oh, I'm speaking this Sunday on uh, the theme of gratitude and thankfulness she said oh well you know what we really deserve don't you and here's a sweet old lady who was so loving and so had such a good character and then she said we deserve death and hell wow lady that's strong is that true let's consider let's consider ultimate reality for a moment consider ultimate reality you are a spiritual creature a spiritual being made by a creator god ultimate reality is this, that before there was anything, there was nothing. But there wasn't just nothing, because in that nothingness, there was God. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who'd lived in perfect, harmonious, loving, generous, kind, outgoing, overflowing relationship. God is fully sufficient in himself. He then created a universe, not out of need, but out of the overflow of his goodness. God is a loving, generous, kind creator. But more than a creator, he's a father, And even more than a father, he's a rescuer. That's ultimate reality. That's the world that we find ourselves in. Now, skipping back into the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 6, we see an insight into how this God felt about the world that he created. So the story is that human beings, the human race, rebelled against their creator and decided to be lords and ladies in their own right, kings of their own castles. And there's these tragic two verses in Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6, where it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man, saw that it was great, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him. And then what God does is, he, he selects a family from among all the families on the earth and says, well, this family I'm going to show my kindness to and I'm going to send my rescuer through this family. But this family is typical and represents the human race in general. And talking about his relationship with this family in Hosea chapter 11, God says this, when Israel, that was the family that God selected, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. So he was enslaved in Egypt, and I rescued him. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the foreign gods and burning offerings to idols. And then in the New Testament, picking up this cheery theme, the Apostle Paul talks about the origin of mankind. And he says this, that the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile. What Paul's saying is it's obvious. It's obvious when you look at the world. There's a creator. You might not be able to say much about him, but it's obvious that he's there. And what happened is the human race, all of us, both generally the human race, but specifically as individuals, we suppressed that knowledge. Why? Because I wanted to do it my way. I wanted to be in charge. And what that leads to then is a high sense of I deserve. Whereas if ultimate reality is God and we've rebelled against God, then what do we, what do we really deserve? Well, my lovely, sweet old lady at the train station was probably right. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve, well, put it this way. God, when he created the, God, when he created the devil and the devil and, and the angels rebelled against God, what did God do? He acted justly towards the devil. He acted justly by creating a lake of fire into which he would punish him for all eternity. It's a just way for a holy God to respond to a rebellious fallen angel. Yes, it sounds right. Well, what do we do when things that we make break? You know, so teapots are the most annoying one, aren't they? If you buy a teapot and it doesn't pour, it just dribbles down the side. You think you have one purpose and you're not fulfilling that purpose. What do we do with teapots? We throw them away. Or what do we do with rebellious, hurtful, vengeful people? Well, we want justice a lot of the time. Well, so does God. So God would be well within his right, it seems, to throw us away. You're not fulfilling the purpose you were made for. You were made to know me, to love me, to find ultimate pleasure and delight in me. You see, violating the laws of ultimate reality has consequences in the same way that violating the laws of natural reality, nature would. You can't jump off a building and expect nothing to happen to you. Gravity's at work. You can't rebel against God as a species and as individuals and expect nothing to happen. Well, what's worse is that we don't expect nothing to happen. We deserve, we deserve God to be good to us. We deserve life to be happy. We deserve, we deserve, we deserve. So if I pay for something, I deserve for it to work. And that's how many of us, there's a value underlying us. We deserve and we earn. I've earned this. I've earned this rest with the sweat of my hands. I've earned some peace and quiet because the kids are in bed and that's my time and I've earned it. Well, what have we really earned? We're familiar with wages. I work for you. I've earned some wages. The Bible says, again, the wages of sin is death. Oh, so that's what I've earned. I've earned death. Oh. See, God hates sin. Hates it in the way that a mother hates the disease of a life, hates the disease that takes the life of her child. Or a spouse, a grieving spouse, hates the cancer that robbed her of her loved one. That's how God feels. How do we treat disease and cancer? We stand up to it, we kill it. God is within his right, therefore, as holy creator God, to kill us. So, see, the reason we're not often more grateful in our hearts is because we don't believe that. 
we, we think, I, I've earned life, I've earned happiness, I've earned health, I've earned for things to go well for me. Well, what did you really earn? You had no say in being born. You had no say in the home you were raised in, the privileges you were given. You had no say in the time of history that you've been born into, the most affluent time in the, in the existence of the human race. You had no say in the place on the planet that you were born into. There's no difference between you and Syrian refugees. You haven't earned it any more than they've earned or deserved that. There was nothing I did to control anything in my past to create me as I am. I had no say in it. More than my past, I had no say in my present. We know how incredibly complex and fragile the human human heart and system is. I have no say that I'm going to wake up tomorrow, that my heart's going to carry on beating. No say in that. I haven't earned any of it. It's all a gift. All of it's a gift. It all comes from the hand of a good, loving father. A father who would be well within his rights. Say, well, that didn't work. Start again. He doesn't do that. He loves. Because ultimate reality is that God is a, is a tri-personal father, son, spirit being who loves and is overflowingly generous and kind. And that's good. Suddenly I feel a, a, an underlying gratitude grip me. In a way that just reacting to circumstances doesn't. Because what your beliefs are and what, what, you, what your beliefs are and what you believe deep down betray, is betrayed in your behavior, but it shows itself in how grateful you are a lot of the time. There's a, a famous story about um, it was a Billy Graham, I think, the preaching evangelist from the last century. And the famous story was that a colleague or someone that had known him quite well said some incredibly unkind things about him and really hurt him, really wounded him. And he took this hurt and pain to God in prayer. and was just confessing how he made him feel and what this person had said about him. And he felt God say to him in the stillness of his prayer room, the half of it is not even true. I mean, sorry, that's not even the half of it. <laughs> With Billy Graham, well, that's not very kind. That's not even the half of it, God said. He's, he's got some things right, but there's a lot more that he hasn't got right. Do you not know how wretched and awful you are? If Genesis 6 is true, then every intention of the human heart is towards wickedness. And when God says wickedness, he doesn't mean towards destruction and violence and murder. He means to violate ultimate reality and to set ourselves up as gods and kings and queens. It's a wickedness that enthrones ourselves in a universe where God is king. Not even the half of what people can say about you would ever come close to being true, the, the whole truth. Well, that's very bleak. It would be if God wasn't loving and kind. So those are some thoughts on the belief that might promote and foster a culture of gratitude. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's therefore wrong to to grieve and to live with a sense of injustice when you've been treated wrong. I once sat with a friend who'd grown up with a very abusive older brother and he was just weeping in front of me saying, I deserve to have a sibling who treated me differently. I said, yes, you did. And it is an injustice that you, ha- that you didn't and you are within your right to grieve over that. But what is different is the attitude underneath it. It isn't an attitude of entitlement because it recognizes all of life's a gift anyway. So just some of our beliefs. Let's, talk, let's turn and think about some of our 
behaviors. So we talked about the heart of gratitude. Now in a few minutes that we've got, and you're going to do some work on this, the hands of gratitude, how do we behave? So on your pieces of paper, there's four quadrants, the big stuff, the small stuff, the tough stuff, and the forgotten stuff. I want you to take a moment to just, let's fill out the big stuff box. What big things, big things can we think of that we can thank God for today? So this might be to do with a lot of what I've just been sharing. The fact that God loves us even though we are sinners and rebels by nature. The big stuff, the stuff that God's done in your life that you're really, really grateful for. Write down a few things in that box. This might be the... The home that you live in might be God's love towards you. That he sent his son to die for you might be those things. Okay, let's think about the small stuff as well. The stuff that we walk past every day and overlook. It's sunny. (laughs) The smaller stuff of life. Little children. The amazing miracle of new life. The small stuff of answered prayer. Where we recognize God. I, I... so often, like, you answer my prayers and I never give you any credit or acknowledgement for it. What small stuff is there? And then there's the tough stuff. The stuff that we'd rather not have to go through. But having been through it, we can see how God used it to shape our character, to help us. A lot of the things that happened in my life that I would never have chosen, I can also say I would never have chosen that, and I, I wish it never happened, but thank you for using it. Thank you for how you used it to form an aspect of my character. For me, when my dad passed away, I saw glimpses of the faithfulness of God in a way that I I could only talk about before, but I, I felt it personally in the tough stuff. I'm grateful for that. And then there's the forgotten stuff. Which you might think, well, it's forgotten. How can I write it down? The remembered stuff that was previously forgotten, hitherto forgotten. These, again, might be answers to prayer. Might be prophetic words that you remember. Someone gave me this prophetic word years ago, and now it's happened, and I never realized it before now. Thank you, God. I remember moments of miraculous provision in my life that I so easily forget when I'm praying. There was a, a moment in my life when I was um, volunteering in the church and I was living on housing benefit, and the, uh, the council hadn't paid my housing benefit, and um, I was away on training. I was in, in my overdraft and I, the hundreds of pounds that I was beginning to owe was going up and up and up. And someone publicly said, I feel God saying, you know, there's someone here who feels let down financially. Um, let me pray for you because God wants to reassure you that he's faithful. And so I responded for prayer. They prayed for me. Three days later, uh, or no, maybe less than that, two days later, I went home and in an envelope on the, the doormat from the postman, was all of the backdated pay that the council were going to pay me. And then the next day I went into the offices and someone had randomly given me a, a, a cash gift of £300. 
It was just remarkable. It was, 700, it was about 700 pounds in the space of two days. And I did nothing. I just worried out loud. We call it prayer. I just worried out loud to God. When I remember the forgotten moments like that, I go, thank you, God. So there's a quadrant that you can fill out, you know, after this morning's finished. You can put it in your Bibles and when you have a moment, read it over, just get into a habit. Again, we're trying to cultivate thankfulness through what we believe, but also through how we behave. And this is one way we can behave. Now, as we finish, I just want to suggest three other quick practical things that we can do to help us cultivate thankfulness. A number of years ago, when swine flu was um, the, the thing that everyone was very, very scared of, there was um, an advert that some medical body had made that was uh, encouraging children on how to treat their sneezes because sneezes pass germs. So I don't know if you ever saw this. It was uh, a rap video where the, the lyrics were just, catch it, bin it, kill it. Do you remember that, anybody? that had sneezes, catch it, bin it, kill it. Yeah, catch it, bin it, kill it. I was great, wasn't it? I think we're all on the same page. That what? Sorry, that was just you on. You know, okay, fine. That was just me. that's what I sung. Um, catch it, bin it, kill it. So, with that kind of framework in mind, we're going to think of three practical things that we can do that we can even put to rap. John's going to sing it afterwards. Sarah's got a dance that she's prepared, and we'll see how we get on. Um, first one: speak it, speak thankfulness to cultivate it. Speak it. You can write this on the back of your quadrant if you want. Speak it. This actually, let's put it up there. Here we go. In your marriages, in your friendships, in your workplace, in your family, speak it. I have to admit, Amy is very good at this. She thanks me for all of the little things that I do around the house. Maybe because they don't happen very often, but she thanks me often. And actually, I think we're both quite good at that. In our marriage, there's always been an attitude of thankfulness. Thank you for taking the bins out. And thank you that, although I asked you for two months to Hoover, you finally did. Thank you. Now, there's thankfulness that often, thank you for the dinner. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Saying thank you is a powerful way of cultivating thankfulness. Okay, we're English, so we don't need an education on how to say thank you, do we? But I think what, where this hits the road a lot of the time is in our workplaces. Because in our workplaces, we're there to be productive and we, there's a stronger sense of entitlement perhaps in the office than in the home. Because it's, unless we can come back to the other one in the home. But in the office, it's true. And so here's a challenge. For those of us who are Christians, cultivate thankfulness in your workplace. Say thank you often for little things. And express your gratitude in other ways. Small gifts for people, that kind of thing. Speak it, write it. Write it. Again, if you're someone who knows you have a high sense of, a strong sense of entitlement, you need to declare war on entitlement. And one of the things that we can do practically is we can write it. Journal. So make a list of all the things that you can be thankful for every day. Why don't you start your day? If you know that you're someone who is prone to going through your days focusing on what you don't have, if you're more on the pessimistic side of the spectrum, why don't you cultivate thankfulness as a way of real, you know, rebalancing yourself? Say, no, I'm grateful for all that God has given me. A friend of mine said that um, years ago he knew that he really struggled with pessimism to the point that whenever he, he went outside, if it started raining, he, there was always one word that it would come to his lips quicker than any other word. It would be the word typical. <laughs> typical. Yeah, it's raining. Typical. I missed the bus. Typical. Typical, typical. And what that does is it fosters an attitude of pessimism and victim-like mentality. Thankfulness breaks that pattern. So journal it. Um, we do this thing in the home uh, around the, the meal time at the moment where we have a, a thankfulness jar. And every day during the week, 
we have to write down at least one thing that we're thankful for and pop it in the jar. And then at the end of the week, we empty the jar out and we read it out together, all of the stuff that we're thankful for. Because again, we're wanting to model that to the kids. We've just introduced the last couple of days a gratitude ladder at home. <laughs> I'm just all about competition, aren't I? Gratitude ladder. You start at the bottom and at the top is a really exciting treat that we all want as a family. And so now, every time they behave in a way that I think warrants them moving up the rungs of the ladder, then their little stick man moves up. And we've all got one Amy me and the kids in fact Riley's drawn one for the bump which is a little bit unfair because <laughs> they can't play and they're gonna you know ruin the whole family treat <laughs> and so Amy and I like the kids we know we need to grow in gratitude so we're writing it and doing stuff like that uh, another friend of mine who works for the church in Hastings Natalie she um she says that as a church they've got a very good reputation among the local police and governing bodies but they didn't always have that. She said that she began cultivating a, a good reputation and involvement in local politics and local things simply by writing letters, thanking people for what they were doing. So she found out the name of her local chief of police and wrote him a letter thanking him for the hard work that he puts in. Very rare that someone would do that, perhaps. So she did that, wrote to her local MP. Thank you for all the commitment that you show to our town and the way that you, you know, work hard for us. That is countercultural right there, isn't it? <laughs> Thanking local politicians. Imagine, imagine living in a society where dishonor wasn't the, the, the drink of choice. But instead, we were honoring and being grateful. We're in the church. That's how we get to be. We get to behave in a way that bucks the trend. How exciting. So you can do that. Right? Let's find out the name of the local uh, people who work in the council and chief of police. And let's write letters of appreciation. Helps us, helps them. It's good. I mean, Seaford is a lovely town. It's beautiful. There's very little wrong with Seaford. But my friend who works in the council is astonished at how bitter and entitled and mean-spirited so many people are. They never have anybody saying thank you to them for anything. In fact, they're pointing out all of the problems in Seaford. You think, have you opened your eyes? It is a beautiful, affluent, nice place to live. I'm sure that they're, don't get me wrong, it's not perfect. But gratitude is an important attitude to cultivate. It's the antidote to mean-spiritedness. And we write thank yous to the teachers in Riley's class quite often. Probably I'm a little bit over the top with stuff like this. Like day one, thank you, have a box of chocolates. <laughs> and maybe it's a way of you know, trying to curry favour with the school. <laughs> Speak it, write it, finally sing it. Sing it. You know, the quickest way, or certainly one of the quickest ways to the emotions is through song. We, we sing together as a congregation, not just because it's a good way that we can all join in. <laughs> no, we sing together because it's a good way to remind our emotional life of who God is. And some of us find it hard and uncomfortable to sing, and I understand that. But what, what, what else can you do? What way can you get access to the, your emotional core and create emotions of happiness and gratitude and delight and thankfulness to God? Well, we sing it. Sing it when we're together, when you're in home, not just when you're in the shower, in the car, wherever. Sing it, sing it, sing it. See, the gospel is that despite what we deserve, God has given us so much. And one of the, well, Jesus tells this, um, this parable, uh, no, it wasn't a parable, it was a moment in the life of Jesus that we're going to read in a moment. But um, before, before I read that, I met someone recently who's a Christian. And um, it's the first time I met them, so I went up and said, oh, hello, my name's Jez. <laughs> and they re- I can't remember what their name was, but they replied saying their name and then said, I'm a sinner saved by grace, 
And I thought, well, that's odd, but it's true. <laughs> Hello, my name's Jess. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I was like, yes, you are. And that's a good way to cultivate gratitude. There we go. So that's a, that's a final idea of how we can cultivate gratitude. Sinner saved by grace. Lovely to meet you. Yes, okay, fine. So Jesus, um, in Luke chapter 7, he, he's invited to dinner at Simon's house. And Simon was a Pharisee, so he's one of the religious elite who was very morally upstanding. And in the course of the dinner time, a woman uh, named Mary came in, and um, she, was, she was a woman of ill repute. Um, let's just put it like that. People knew that she was a woman with that kind of reputation. And when she saw Jesus having this dinner party, she burst into the room, made a beeline for him, and started kissing his feet and, and wiping his feet with her, the tears from her face and her hair. And it was just this awkward, uncomfortable scene for most English people, I think you'll agree. But fortunately, Jesus wasn't English. And so what he does is he uses this as an opportunity for teaching. And, uh, and this is what he says, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So he, look, he looks at the woman and then says to this Simon, the host of the party, he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Next slide. Sorry, is that it? Did I not put the rest of the story up? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Jesus says, he, who's, he or she who's been forgiven much loves much. We might say is grateful much or is thankful much. He cultivates thankfulness, not just with their lips, but in their hearts as well. So as a way of responding to that message today, we're going to do one more practical thing. Uh, again, to cultivate thankfulness. Because God loved you even when you were far off. When you were living as a God-hater, he loved you then enough to forgive you and draw near to you. He doesn't keep us at a distance, but he embraces us. He allows us to... He sent his son in human flesh so that people could touch him and wipe their hair and kisses on his feet. That's who our God is. And we're going to respond by, um, like we would with breaking bread. There's a couple of tables, one at the back, one at the front, some pens and some post-its. And you're going to come out the front and, uh, or at the back, grab a post-it note and write down something that you're thankful for. While the band are playing this last song, write down something that you're thankful for and then come and stick it on this board as a visual image for us of all the reasons that we might have to be grateful in this church. I'll start with one that, that Riley did during worship, my five-year-old. He said, thank you for the universe and all the things in it that you've made. Lovely. <laughs> Anything like that. Anything that you might have or some of the stories that we've had for answer prayer, for your faithfulness to us. Why don't we stand together, I'll pray, and then we can go to the tables and respond like that. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that we don't just get to say thank you with our lips, but we can really be grateful in our hearts because of what you've done for us. I pray that you would make me, make all of us people who are grateful to their core for what you've done. God, that you would eradicate an entitlement in me and in us. 
that we would see life as, a, as the gift that it is, given from the hands of a loving and generous and kind Father, not something that we've earned or done anything about. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen.